that the project was initially assigned to somebody else, and uh, that person, I don't know who it is, um, kind of let it go when they were trying to get that, whoever the pandemic was, started again, so it's kind of a limbo now. I don't know where things are. So that's a very quick um, history of my relationship with uh, Philip K. Day. Cool. Yeah, and and you've also, but you've already written one of those books in that series on another author that we're right. fans. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a book on J.G. Ballard uh, that was published in 2017. Yes, and, and I actually wanted to. I, I probably would have lobbied for Philip K. Dick in the first place, but it had already been taken. And uh, you know, I, I I actually hadn't written on Ballard a lot before, and had barely read Ballard. I'd read Crash and a few stories. Uh, I think I read the Atrocity exhibition too. But I really, one way for me to read an entire author's library and canon is to take on a uh, book project, motivating uh, on my own. Yeah. Uh, although not with Dick, he's one of the few authors where I just couldn't help myself or stuff. So. <laughs> so have you read? Have you read all of them? Have you read all of Dick's? Yeah. Have you read all of Dick's books? Or I have. The problem is, yeah, I've read everything. Wow. But and I think about him too. But I told, as I was telling David uh, uh, in a message the other day, I, I forget everything. I mean, I could probably barely tell you anything about Ballard at, the, at this point, and I was completely immersed in, uh, in him for several years there. I, I, I forget it. I don't forget everything, but I forget a lot. You know? Yeah, uh, David and I had the same same thing with. Uh... Man in the High Castle, having read it way back in the early 90s, you know, and, and I didn't remember half, more than half of the book. Like, I remembered characters and, like, maybe maybe some things they did, but the rest of it, it's right. just, just gone, you know? Yeah, and, and I, I feel the same way, especially when I was watching the show, of course, which was pretty remarkable for a Philip K. Dick adaptation. Those can go, but some of those are quite bad, some are quite good. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Philip K. Dick book? Um, uh, yeah, it's probably Ubik. Ubik? Ubik, yeah. I, I've taught yeah. that. I think I've taught that book more than anything else, and I've written on it. And uh, when I first, you know, started writing, I probably plagiarized it or, or <laughs> creatively plagiarized it and all of that. And, so one of the things about Philip K. Dick is that there's a lot of authors who are very influenced by his work, but I think one of the things that gets lost in the influence by Philip K. Dick work is the humor. And your, one of your early novels, Dr. Identity, is the, has the humor of Philip K. Dick dialed to 11. And it's one of my favorites of your work. Um, I, I'm assuming Dr. Identity was influenced by Philip K. Dick. But yeah, absolutely. And, I, and you know, I, it's the same with my own books. I kind of forget what those are about, too, and what I did. But I do distinctly remember channeling Philip K. Dick more than anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I believe at the time I had referred to it as uh, Monty Python meets Philip K. Dick. When I All right. It. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bit, as my uh, earlier work tends to be over the top in terms of satire. Not a bit, a whole lot uh, uh, over the top in terms of satire. Humor, at least my attempts at those things. Humor is more subjective than just about uh, everything. Yep. Yep. 
Now, you just released a book last year with Stocking Horse Press, which is absolutely one of the weirdest books I've ever read. Can you tell <laughs> our listeners about it, and then we'll move on to Lion Zane? Sure. Right. So that book, uh, it's called The Psychotic Dr. Schraber, and it's about uh, <laughs> who is purportedly the most uh, famous madman in all of psychiatry, Daniel Paul Schraber, who I became familiar with after I saw the movie Dark City. Uh, by Alex Proyas in 1998, which is essentially a science fictionalization of Schraber's memoirs. Really? Uh, called The translation is called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness. Um, so what I, tr- what I, and it is, I won't go into what the memoirs are about, but they're totally batshit. More <laughs> batshit than I could conceive of or that I have read elsewhere or seen elsewhere or experienced. Uh, but what's wonderful about it is the um, the absolute reason and the uh, of Schraber writing about his schizophrenic episodes essentially, and in the end Schraber kind of says, "Well, look, these episodes. Yes, I'm crazy and everything, but at the same time, I'm still a god, and you should treat this book as a." And here's why, and that's just objective reality. And if you don't agree with me, well, you know, fuck you. Um, so it was, it's, it, you know. It, it, it's both. It's not supposed to be funny at all, but it's hilarious. And uh, what I try to do in my book is explore a number of things, not just uh, uh, it's because it's both critical and creative and theoretical. So I pull from a lot of different sources. I explore, try to explore. Everything I do is an attempt. Uh, whether I succeed or not is is not uh, uh, is anybody's guess. But. Um, Philip K. Dick actually factored into that. I, I think I cite him. Uh, I forgot from, from what books on several occasions. Uh, yeah, you did. And, and there's this, I believe there's a scene where he's kind of having a convers- or conversation with Dick to a degree or, or with his work, I guess. But right, uh, right. Right. And, and that's, I remember dog earing the page and saying, we gotta, we gotta get, uh, David Harlan Wilson on this show. <laughs> Well, one thing I, I do with that, the, the, I won't go on too long about it, but uh, no, one of my, a lot of theses in that book, one of them is that Schraber kind of serves as a model or paradigm or what have you for uh, 21st century pathology and uh, type of madness that has become normative. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, how can you not connect that to Philip K. Dick in some way? <laughs> Paranoia and paranoia and Dick is that's one of his favorite themes is plays uh plays well into uh Schraber's memoirs. Hmm. All right, well um I really hope people check out that book. It's from Stocking Horse Press, which is of course one of our favorite publishers here. Uh James Reich uh published that and he's a friend of the show, has been on with Maltzberg. And then the last thing I want to talk about is with your press, you are actually reprinting um former guest of the podcast, Barry Maltzberg's classic book, Revelations, but it's not your first time republishing Barry Maltzberg. How did you get into Barry no. Maltzberg? So, he, he is probably, jeez, uh, with Ballard and Dick, my favorite science fiction author. And uh, I forgot when I started Anti-Oedipus Press in 2013, I believe, and uh, one of my objectives was to bring back into print um, science fiction, especially, 
novels that I thought were great, but that had not received the attention that I thought that they deserved, and Malzberg was really... And uh, I was particularly fond of Galaxies, which is among, you know, a lot of his stuff is very meta, but that's particularly meta, uh, among other things. And that was, if I'm not mistaken, the first reprint of his that we did. Uh, we've also done Beyond Apollo, uh, the Falling Astronauts, and then Revelations will be the fourth. And he's, I've, of course, been in communication with him, and he's the most enthusiastic, it seems, about Revelations. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'd like to continue doing that with, uh, um, the next one I wanted to do is Harabit's World. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. I didn't know he was on his podcast. Yeah. Yeah. How, how, was, he? Revelations at how was he? Yeah. He was a crotchety old New York Jew. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> I, I met him once in person at ReaderCon in Boston after I, let's see, I think it was after Beyond Apollo, the reprint came out. I don't think, I, I, he didn't know who I was. <laughs> yeah, I but he... I him when I, when I email him and talk to him. He was that. fantastic. I mean, knowledge, he, he knows so much about science fiction and the history. And it was a... Uh, Incidentally, I should mention for this reprint of Revelations that's coming out uh, just in a couple of months, I wrote a pretty scathing introduction, kind of exaggerating a little bit, but in the introduction I, I, I explain in great depth and, and in very Malzbergian fashion how I think that science fiction is dead and that it belongs to the 20, 20th century. <laughs> so that that hopefully will piss some people off. Yeah, right. That actually already did piss some people off on the social network. So that's cool. Nice. <laughs> well, yeah, Maltzberg not only uh, worked at the Scott Meredith Literary Agency, where reading slush, you know, at Dex Literary Agency, but also worked for Ace Books reading slush. Ooh. And so he was fascinating to have on the podcast because the best part for us was that he was in the room when Don Wilhelm got the letter saying that Man the High Castle, the book he passed on, was nominated for a Hugo. <laughs> and he got to uh, see Don Wilhelm uh, blow a gasket and start screaming that's not science fiction about Man in the High Castle. <laughs> and, uh, so that was very fun. All right, so uh, we're going to get back to our regular programming, but we hope that everyone out there will check out Professor Wilson's work. Um, I highly recommend, I don't know if Dr. Identity is still in print, but if you can it is. down. It yeah, is, that actually uh, won, that won the first, uh, what is it, Wonderland Book Award. That's true. Which, it that's, did. that's still around, too, I think. Right. And, uh, yeah, so. Thanks uh, for mentioning those Identity. books, incidentally. Yeah, Dr. Identity is fantastic. I'm also a big fan of Blankety Blank, your novel that came out after that. And um, and then the new one, The Psychotic Dr. Schraber, is is just absolutely one of the weirdest fucking things I've ever read. <laughs> so uh, please check out your work. I'm going to uh, uh, definitely read the Ballard book, too, eventually. Um, probably, um, probably soon. I'm telling you, David, side podcast. We'll do Ballardians. It'll be great. I'm telling you. Talk about how much I love Concrete Island. I'm for it, Anthony. Uh, you you get that one going. You know, when I wrote when I was writing that book, there's a whole subculture of Ballardians. I don't know if you're plugged into that, but uh, no. Yes. But I will. Be well, now. we'll definitely at least do 
a Ballard episode for Dick and Jason because yeah. uh, it's good. Yeah. Um, so, PKD news. There's actually news. Um, despite still dead. He gone. <laughs> still dead. But besides that, um, one weird thing that I read about on in Rolling Stone, which is really interesting, is uh, pop singer The Weeknd, who I had to look up who he was because <laughs> I'm a death metal and punk guy. <laughs> of course um, I did. <laughs> but uh, apparently The Weeknd is a big deal. Um, yeah. Because there are actually <laughs> multiple, multiple... He's a big deal to the kids. <laughs> yes, to the, to the youth. The <laughs> so apparently this weekend guy uh, has a new album, and there's a song on it called Snow Child, and the song is about science fiction, and <laughs> there is a reference to Philip K. Dick in the song... The, the lyric is something like, She liked my futuristic sounds in the new spaceship. Futuristic sex gave her Philip K. Dick. <laughs> Give her my Philip K. Dick. So, but Wow, I am shocked that you brought that up. Well, at, least but, but I would like to, at least he's reading, you know? He's reading something. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but, but I would like to point out, David, is that Run the Jewels made a Philip K. Dick reference like years ago <laughs> yeah well I know but here's the thing there are multiple articles pointing people to Philip K. Dick's work because of this reference nice so I do think that that's interesting most of them are directly pointing to do Android dream of, of electric sheep and some are making references to the movies but I have a feeling that um, it is going to um have some kind of trickle down. I'm sure some people are going to discover it. Um, well, that's this, and, that's the gateway right there. Androids is the is the gateway. You know, I well, I disagree because that's not what I started with. I still haven't read Androids. Really, I have never read. So Blade Runner had nothing to do with you getting into Philip well, K. No. Dick. Oh well, yeah, but all right, all right, not that doesn't count because the uh, it doesn't count. Red was Plans of the Alphane Moon. <laughs> Androids is, uh, you know, it's, I think it's, in my experience in any case, it's the most widely taught Philip K. Dick book. Primary, yeah. And I yeah. think it's the most widely known because of Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, not, it's Blade Runner, in my estimation, uh, uh, is, well, I don't want to say what's a better narrative, but <laughs> it's, uh, I do like it better than the book, but it's, it's still a good book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Right. Um, it's not Philip K. Dick's best uh, in my view. Uh, <laughs> no. But it's by far, uh, it's certainly not the, the worst by any means. Well, I can't, I can't wait to revisit. I want to revisit that one and see, you know, because that, that was the first one uh, you and I read, right, David? Uh, like yeah, in, I mean, in high school. When I was very. Yeah. It was, it was the first. But my first real, like, like getting into PKD and really getting into it was when Total Recall came out. I bought the short story collection that had Total Recall in it. The uh, volume two of the best of Philip K. Dick. Right. And that's really where I dove in um, in the uh, probably 1990 whenever Total Recall came out. And uh, I still have both my Do Androids Dream and the best of Philip K. Dick that I read back in the day. So on the shelf. 
I'm but, curious, uh, uh, Dave. Dave, what is your least favorite uh, dick book? Because here at the podcast, I think unanimously we all despise the cosmic puppets. <laughs> uh, boy, oh boy, G- give me a minute or two and I'll pop. <laughs> You know what? Hold on. I'm going to go, because I have all my Philip K. Dicks. Yeah, go for it. Dick book lined up. I'll find it right now. Yeah. I don't know. Dr. Futurity is pretty bad. Doctor, it's, it's called Dr. White Savior. I don't know why you keep getting that title wrong. And then what's the other one? The the one we just read that was so was worse than Cosmic, well, on the same, same level as Cosmic Puppets. Now wait for last year? No. No, that no. one was good. No. Close to Cosmic Puppets. It was, uh, uh, The Crack in Space? No. The Crack in Space. No. The whack. No, was it? No. I don't remember anymore. I don't know. Life and Time is meaningless at this point. Yeah, right. Like, we're all gonna die right think, you know what? I think it's The Cosmic Puppets. I, I, I almost said, <laughs> it uh, is. Now Wait for Last Year, but there's, and I, I, it's literally been 20 years since I read it. Oh, I like Now Wait for Last Year. I've seen that with the, the protagonist, whoever it is. A restaurant or something, and his therapist shows up, and he's like, "Get up on the table. We gotta work through this." <laughs> like in a, pu- in a public uh, uh, atmosphere. I mean, is that correct? No, uh, in Cosmic Puppets. No, no, no. And now wait. Oh, for now last wait year. for last year. I see uh, no, no, none of that one. Goes up, and he's like, "All right, we gotta do this," and you know, they're, they're in the middle of uh, something out in public. I but then that I didn't finish it. All right, well, hey, I have two more pieces of uh, Tolkien Tech news. Wow. Let's just get those over. Uh, the Philip K. Dick Film Festival announced its winners this year for the Film Fest because they were able to have the Film Fest before the world shut down. Just snuck it in right and before. They did early in March, and um, a film made in Washington, D.C. called Magic, M-A-J-I-C, one uh, best PKD feature. It's not based on Phil K. Dick, but it's the one that's supposed to have the most PKD themes. And then the best dramatic presentation went to a movie called Imperial Blue, which was a Ugandan film about a drug smuggler. I don't know anything else about that, but it sounds interesting. I want to see it. And the, the best Phil K. Dick adaptation went to a short film that uh, adapted the short story Young Ford. And, yeah, that's the Philip K. Dick Film Festival for this year. There were other winners and things, but those were the ones I thought were, were actually of note. All right. Uh, I'll, I'll have links in the show notes. And also, links in the show notes will be the five judges were selected for next year's PKD Awards. That will not be in the show notes. <laughs> Oh, which should be. Uh, the five Why? judges and, and their addresses are listed at locusmag.com. So if you're and David author, will read you all their addresses. By <laughs> that one here. Oh, no but um, if you're a writer or a publisher who has a work that you want considered for the Phil K. Dick Award, um, that you can send books to the judges oh, okay. all right. for next year. David, is Locust paying you right now? No. I'm just curious. But, I, but they can if they want to. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm mentioning the judges for the Philip K. Dick Award. Because in the last couple of years, uh, well, I did appreciate former guest of the show, Carrie Vaughn's book, Bannerless, that won, that I thought was very deserving of the PKD Award. 
But most of the books that are nominated to me are pretty mainstream science fiction and don't have, to me, a very PKD feel to them. And when we had a book like Un-America by Cody Goodfellow that came out last year, that, in my opinion, should have won the Philip K. Dick Award by Landslide that wasn't even nominated, uh, I would like publishers who are doing work that is more Philip K. Dick oriented to really take seriously uh, nominating their books. That's all I'm saying. Alright. So Makes sense. Uh, that's why So, on to Dick-like suggestions. Um, I have read two books this month uh, that I want to talk about. Uh, one is the is an episode is one that we should do an episode about in the future, which is The World of Null A by A.E. Von Vogt, um, which Phil K. Dick has basically admitted he that Solar Lottery was a ripoff of The World of Null A. Um, and uh, it's he's credited this book as one of his biggest influences. And I read World of Null A because I'm going on the S F F audio podcast tomorrow to talk about it with their crew. And uh, this book is totally fucking bananas. Um, and it was written, it was originally published as a serial in 1945. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Uh, what? Brown. Yeah. And uh, the world of Null A is, if you think fucking PKU pop culture with nerds. And crazy plots, well, A.E. Von Vogt's, like, to hold my beer, because <laughs> A.E. Von, there's a reason why Philip K. Dick was influenced to just completely go bananas with plots. Um, I wrote a review on my blog, but um, the world in L.A. is completely fucking bananas. Um, and it seems like it was plotted by the I Ching as well, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was A.E. Von Vogt would just let his dreams figure out where he was going next with the book. Not a good idea. But, um, and I read Damon Knight's critique of it, which is almost more famous than the actual book, because he tore the shit out of the book. And so, reading Damon Knight's review with it is kind of essential. And then, um, Deus X by Norman Spinrad, which is a 1992 cyberpunk cli-fi novel uh, and I'm not going to say much about it but it's fucking incredible and you know a short masterpiece and uh, I wrote a review of that on my blog too so and you should always be reading Spinrad is that uh, in print currently we printed it with short stories into a collection okay uh, it's a 200 page novel and it's really out of date with the internet stuff, but it holds up amazingly well considering it was written in 1992, the dawn of the internet. And it's basically about the, they invent this thing called the big board where people like upload their consciousness and the Roman Catholic church. But they're still using phone modems. <laughs> right. Well, the, Catholic Church uploaded a priest, even though they said that it was soulless, whatever, and then they lost, uh, the hackers stole the priest. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, it's fucking bananas. It's really good. <laughs> and, uh, guest of the show, Norman Spinrad, uh, and I wish I had read it before we interviewed him so I could talk to him about it, but uh, we'll just have to have him back. 
Yeah, and then I can kind of discuss The Men in the Jungle with him, which I'm currently reading now, and I think is great. Awesome. Yeah, we love Spin Rad, so yay, Spin Radders. <laughs> Larry, what's your tickle-like suggestion? All right, so uh, Hideo Kojima is a video game maker that's really famous for writing plot-driven games that are bizarre. Uh, he He... Did the Metal Gear Solid series? Uh, Guillermo del Toro and Hideo Kojima made this thing called PT, which is a playable trailer, which was supposed to be a sequel. <laughs> uh, which was supposed to be a sequel to a different video game. It never happened. But wait, uh, wait, what what game was that? Silent Hill. That was supposed to- it was oh, supposed oh, to be was Silent Hills. They released that playable walkthrough that then just never happened. Yeah. And it was supposed to get, uh, star the guy from uh, from The Walking Dead. I can't remember the actor's yeah, Norman name. Norman Reedus. Norman Reedus. I had, I had drinks with him once. It was awesome. Uh, but so that got canceled. Kojima got fired from Konami. Like, it was this whole deal. And then he took five years to come out with his next game, which is this Death Stranding, which turns out to be the Postman. If you all know the David Brin novel, it's basically the Postman, but it also involves a series of mass extinctions. Everyone that dies has their own private beach where they, they go in between their lives. And a a conspiracy to to destroy all life in the universe and the only way to save it is through this guy delivering packages so it involves a lot of the pkd elements of of like paranoia and alternate realities and what is reality and it, it's not the best video game as far as gameplay is concerned, but it is amazing when it comes to story elements. Basically, this guy is making movies uh, that take, you know, 45 hours to to get through the entire plot. So would you say it's like playing through a cutscene? It, it basically... It, you basically play this walking simulator to get to the cutscenes. So you can find out about all these really cool characters and, and the, uh, like there's a, a character who can't touch anything because she was destroyed by antimatter. Uh, but she's still alive, but she dies all the time. Everybody just dies and comes back to life. There, there's a guy whose uh, family was killed, and he keeps killing himself to see if he can find their beach so he can uh, reunite with his family. Uh, there's a character who is who is alive only in one building because that's where her baby was born, and when, when her child was born, it had this special power, but the baby died at that time. And so if she ever leaves this building, she immediately ages and, and dies. And so she's stuck in this one place. I mean, it's a really deep story. 
all within basically the postman. Mm. So that there you go. That sounds really interesting. You've been saving that one? <laughs> yeah, it, it came out a while back. And, and the reason I saved it is because it's interactive with other people, but not in sort of the classic uh, multiplayer way. It's interactive in that people have built roads. It, it, it started out as a pure post-apocalypse, right? So you had to walk over mountains. You had to walk over the Rockies uh, to try to get to California. But now people have built uh, roads and ladders and ways to get around that didn't exist when the game first came out. So it's a totally different style of gaming. You are... David, Br David Brin's brother tried to fuck me. <laughs> like, literally? Yes. <laughs> it was in 1997. I was at a science fiction conference. Young, you know. And uh, we were, I was hanging out with Brin, John Clute. Nice. Tim Stanley Robinson. And there was just like a bunch of uh, famous sci-fi authors there. I was young. All of us in San Diego. Uh, is from here. Yeah. Brent is from here. Cool, David. Let the man tell this story. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not that interesting. Uh, we were just uh, hanging out in the bar, and uh, his brother was drunk. You know, he was just he was hitting on me. But it, it got kind of uncomfortable after a while. And uh, you know, back then I was very strapping. You know, and uh, uh, Brent would Brent got pissed. And uh, eventually, I think he, like, uh, I can't remember what happened. I think he sent him to his room, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that little uh, sidebar. I, I totally <laughs> forgot about that until you brought up Bryn. No, all the sidebars. Yeah. We like sidebars. So, uh, I saw Bryn speak once, and it was right after The Postman came out, the movie. Oh, yeah. He spent that whole time. Yeah, this was around, This was right before. He, he spent the whole time, like, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. The book is way better. Just read the book. I'm sorry about the movie. <laughs> it's not hard. Um, yeah, I've uh, been on a few panels with Brent and been around him here in town, and um, he seems like a nice guy, but I don't know his brother. So. <laughs> yeah, I uh, like I said, I completely forgot about that. Brent is very, uh, from uh, uh, what I remember, I remember very, being very funny and well-spoken. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That he is. Yeah. Props to uh, San Diego author David Brent. I'm a so, huge fan of Star Tide Rising. That's a great book. Yeah, I like that one. I, I'm really excited to read Existence. It looks really good. I have it on the shelf. I haven't got to it yet. But uh, Professor Wilson, what is your dick-like suggestion? Oh, yeah. So we were talking about this the other day. It, it, are, are these are, are our images part of the podcast? Uh, the YouTube yes. channel. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, I don't know if you can see this. this oh, yeah. Lavi Tidhar's Osama. And um, I wrote a review about it, and I guess it came out in 2011. So, I'm actually looking at my review in the Los <laughs> Angeles, published in December of 2012. So, that was about eight years ago. What was that? And Los Angeles Times? or uh, Los Angeles Review of Books. Okay, or, got it. Got it. Yeah. And basically, I argue that the book is something that Philip K. Dick always wanted to write. It exhibits a lot of his dominant themes, uh, but it's extremely 
literary. And uh, um, as we, as you guys doubtless know, uh, and I, I just realized this looking at his, rather looking at his bibliography, Dick's bibliography. In the 50s, he was really making an effort to become a literary sort of mainstream writer, right? Yeah. That, isn't that when he wrote most of the book-length non-science fiction? Yeah. Um, yeah. Novel? So, yeah, early 60s. Uh, right, okay. And uh, one, one is, uh, I really love Confessions of the Crap Artist. Um, anyway, I argue that basically Levy did her out, as I say in the review, out PKD's PKD, in that he's written a, a Phil Dickian book that is everything that Philip K. Dick would have liked to do himself. Hmm. So it's worth yeah. uh, checking out again. What, it's just just called Osama. What's that? It's just called Osama. Osama. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, it's, a, and I, it's about Osama. You know, uh, it centers on nine uh, eleven, uh, and and Osama is a, a character in it. Um, but it's uh, it's pretty wacky and ethereal and absurdist. Uh, mm. Not a straight narrative. I'm surprised at one that they because they're so. Science fiction, fantasy, all the speculative genres, they're supposed to be sources of innovation and ideas, but some of, they're among the, the editors and publishers are among the most conservative I've ever uh, come across. And, uh, you know, for all of their innovation, I find it very uninnovative. And some of it is very innovative and won the award, so that was surprising to me. Hmm. Yeah, you sold me. I've only read one of his novels. I read uh, Central Station. And uh, it's pretty good. So. Yeah, a lot of his are pretty straight. They're more linear. This is not linear. I mean, I can't. I, I don't really read. I'm not uh, uh, linear novels for the most part. I prefer schizophrenic novels. Hence uh, the, the psychotic Dr. Schraber that you were talking about earlier. But this, yeah, Osama is kind of all over the place, yet somehow together, and, and makes sense in the end. Cool. So cool. Anthony, right. do you have... Okay, great. Uh, Anthony, do you have anything this month? <clears throat> um, since David recommended the Cli-Fi novel, I'll go ahead and recommend the most recent Cli-Fi book I read, which is Scott R. Jones's Stonefish that uh, Word Horde just put out, which, not to spoil anything, and it does have a little bit more in common with uh, Lem Solaris than maybe Dick's work, but... It's about a kind of already jaded journalist who goes in search of this missing tech guy, this like fancy, you know, Silicon Valley tech wizard who's disappeared into the forest. And I'm going to just leave it at that because it's an incredible book, incredibly written, beautiful in its prose, interesting in its narrative. And um, I can't not recommend a book that has a mentally deranged, chronically masturbating AI. <laughs> When does it when does it take place? Uh now. Now or no, actually no. Wrong. That's incorrect. It's like twenty or thirty years from now, I believe. Okay. But um Um he's the author has reached out to us and um uh we're I've been talking to him about possibly getting him on the show. He is a dickhead too, so um Yeah, can you loop me in on that? Can you loop me in on that thread then? Because I'd like to talk to him about that in the book, obviously. Sure, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, we'll talk about that when we're not on the air. Uh, but, uh, 
he, he did reach out to us around the time that uh, his short story collection was published, which I'm very interested to read as well. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was on my list already, but you've got me more excited about it. No, Stonefish is, Stonefish is incredible. That's so far the best book I've read this year. Wow. Well, the best new, the best new release I've read this year, I guess I should say. Well, speaking of years, um, the unteleported man slash uh, live date, but mostly unteleported man, was published in the year 1966. David, what was happening oh, in the year 196 and six? Well, I'm not going to go into too much depth about it because we did that on now. Wait for last year because we've already done a 1966 book, but it is the year that the U.S. ratcheted up the Vietnam War, and it was a summer with lots of riots all over the United States. That was like a big thing. I don't think we have to say too much more about that, but we can start talking about the writing and publication history of The Unteleported Man, which... uh, eventually became Lysing, so this is going to get really convoluted, and I apologize ahead of time. We're going to talk more about the publication history of this book than probably any other, because not only is it just the weirdest, most convoluted path that a Phil K. Dick novel took, it's also one that has incredibly long letters written back and forth that had made it into the archives. Huh. Uh, the, the Fullerton archives, or just archives in general? Uh, general archives of, and, and history of uh, Bill K. Dick. There's a lot of notes and letters uh, written about the unteleported man, in part because there, it wasn't expanded until after his death. And yeah, so 84, right? Bonded. Yeah. The correspondence between Terry Carr, who was the assistant editor at Ace, who was in charge of this book, um, and he died shortly after the book got reissued in 1983. So, but he did leave a lot of letters um, back and forth between not only himself and Phil K. Dick at the time, but also letters with um, Russ Galen, who was um, Phil K. Dick's agent at the end of his life, and also represented his estate, who, by the way, we reached out to to interview, and he said, <laughs> and I quote, I no longer talk about Phil K. Dick, um, which makes us more curious to talk to him, but I only followed it up with one email and then let it go. Um so, anyways, uh, sorry about that, Russ. We really wanted to talk to you. Um, so, The Unteleported Man was written directly after the penultimate truth. So, I don't know if he even came back from the hovel after <laughs> uh, writing the penultimate truth or uh, cranking out the first few pages of The Unteleported Man, but um, it was a commission story, a magazine called Fantastic Stories, um, had hired Phil K. Dick to write The Unteleported Man, and he wrote it in the summer of 1964, so it was after Penultimate Truth and before Counterclock World. So it was between those two. Um, and he must have been doing, this is right in the middle of his Speed-taking days, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he'd be churning out, like, five or six novels a year. Yep. 63, yep. too. 
And I believe he was still riding in the um, in the hovel down the road that he had to walk to. All right. Where I, I bet he had that pet rider padlock in there. I, I hadn't really thought about that before, but like it was really just a shack, right? Yeah. And and he wrote all of a teleported man in in um, apparently August of 1964, and it was originally 32,000 words. And um, that's the version that was printed in Fantastic Stories. And it was a full-color illustration by Roy Birmingham in the December issue. So it was finished in August, published in December of 64. And uh, this is an interesting one for the publication at Ace because it's one of the few times the SMLA, the Scott Meredith Literary Agency, did not send the unteleported man to Ace. It didn't even get a chance to send it to him because Terry Carr uh, read the novella and immediately approached Don Wolheim and said, I think this is a really good um, Bill K. Dick work. I think we should publish it. And um, Wolheim's response was that it was too short. We have a quote from Terry Carr about that. Uh, Anthony? I read it there. I thought it, it was excellent. I gave a copy to senior Ace editor Don Wolheim and urged him to buy it, but it was just 32,000 words. Pretty short for a novel, so though Don liked it too, he wanted to know if Phil could expand it to book length. Phil said, sure, no problem, and signed a contract to produce an expanded version, which he did within a few months, and it was given to me to read first. Man, I don't know how this dude just powers through books in months at a time. I haven't, I haven't put anything out for like four years, <laughs> Well, yeah. Methamphetamine, what are you talking about? Yeah, right. I know. And uh, Crank is going to become very valuable here soon. <laughs> yeah, but here's the yeah. thing. Like, doing a lot of Crank, uh, like, that that doesn't lead to focus for a lot of people. That's, that's fair. <laughs> you know? It doesn't lead to, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write that novel. It leads to, I'm going to organize my sock drawer. For three weeks. My with a yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. My my buddy tells this story of a uh, of uh, how he got caught in full scuba gear cleaning his pool with a toothbrush by his wife at three thirty in the morning, and that's when he yeah. knew he had to quit. That's like that's the shit you do when you're tweaking. You don't oh, like yeah. write novels. <laughs> well, so. The history of the idea for the unteleported man comes from uh, apparently it was an it was an idea that Dick spitballed with some friends. He was a part of a writers group that had some pretty famous members. Uh, it was a writers group that was hosted by editor Tony Boucher, who shout out to Tony. We we mentioned him many times on the podcast. He was the editor for many years of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And he was also uh, an author himself. He was most known for writing um, mystery novels. But Boucher was a longtime science fiction editor, and he hosted a science fiction writers group that Phil K. Dick was a part of with uh, writer Ray Nelson, who was the one that Ray would eventually write Ganymede Takeover with Phil K. Dick. Mm -hmm. Ray and Phil K. Dick became very friendly through that group. And Marion Zimmer Bradley, uh, for let's Let's keep aside all the weird issues that she had yeah. <laughs> uh, for a moment. But she was a part of that group. 
And apparently, after one of these groups, uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley, Ray Nelson, and Bill K. Dick were throwing around ideas, and the basic concept for the unteleported man came out of that conversation, specifically between Ray Nelson and Bill K. Dick. So, Bill trying to help the career of Ray Nelson, who had not really published anything other than a few short stories in Boucher's magazine. Uh, Phil tried to bring Ray Nelson in as a co-writer, but uh, Fantastic Stories first did not want Ray Nelson, and then even though he tried to bring Ray Nelson in at Ace, um, Phil Kiddick ended up writing the story on his own. He originally titled it The Whalemouth Colony, and which we all know Phil K. Dick always starts with the worst title. Yep. Um, and this is no different. Um, I actually like the title of The Unteleported Man, and I personally prefer the title of The Unteleported Man to Lies Yeah, same. Uh, and uh, his original concept for this, though, um, he went back to Ray Nelson to talk about the ideas of expanding it. Um, but, and we have this Extremely long letter. Um, Anthony, can you just read that first part that has to the ellipses? This is Phil K. Dick talking about um, the expansion of the Unfolded Man. What would, again, I'm asking off the cuff, Ace's reaction be? For instance, in the expansion of the Unteleported Man, what if Ray was brought in and it... Who's giggling? Not me. Not me. I, I, I come back to the videos, you're all smiling. You just think you're so cute. Only because you said something. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Alright. Start all right. over. I'll start over. What would, again, I'm asking off the cuff, Ace's reaction be? For instance, in the expansion of the Unteleported Man, what if Ray was brought in, in his name, despite the contract being in my name only, appeared with mine? This would not apply to Cantata 140, which is already written. After all, I'm dividing, as in the case of the unteleported man, the sum with someone else, cutting my earnings in half. Obviously, I must believe in Ray's intrinsic contribution to the piece, since, as you know, I write fast, and escalating this piece from 20000 to 50000 would be easy for me. Yeah, because of course it would. But would it be as good if Ray worked on it, too? So, yeah. So he did think, oh, I can just expand it really quickly. Um... <laughs> uh, and, but he was really trying hard to bring Ray Nelson into this. And I think it's kind of cool that he was trying to help out another writer. Um, and uh, Was that his M.O.? To uh, help? He, this is the only I don't think it ever, was. It wasn't. I think Ray Nelson was the only one he really tried to... He did eventually write a book with Rogers and Lasney, but he basically admitted with his Lasney book that he didn't think he had the chops to do the mythological religious stuff in um, in the Zelazny book and brought Zelazny in because he thought Zelazny could do something he couldn't do with the work. And uh, so I, with the Ray Nelson thing, I think it's the only time that he really was trying to hook up another writer. Um, I don't know, maybe... And it, and it didn't work, so he never did it again. <laughs> right. Um <laughs> Because I don't know anything about Ray Nelson besides having, having written Genevieve Takeover with him. Yeah, now, he, he, did Ray Nelson do, he wrote the story on which, uh, the, um, 8 o'clock in the morning, that's what it is. Wasn't that Ray Nelson that uh, they left came from? 
Ooh, oh, really? Oh. Yeah. No, I'm, no, I wrote a book on May Lib, so I should fucking know that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure Ray Nelson wrote that story, 8 o'clock in the morning. It, and then it became a comic, and then it, you know, uh, Carpenter pulled on both. The comic was slightly different than Nelson's story, and Carpenter used both of those for They Live, the screenplay. Huh. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not familiar with I, that's I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Here, let me double check. Well, I'm, no, I'm, I'm no, checking. I want to learn. I'm checking right now. Uh, so, again, Google Ray Nelson at 8 o'clock in the morning. I got Ray Nelson. The, the short story. Apparently he created the propeller beanie. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, I'm not seeing 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it was him. Uh, is his middle name Faraday? Ray this, Faraday uh, Nelson. Yeah, Ray That's Faraday. 8 o'clock in the morning. Riddell Faraday Nelson. Riddell. Yep. Well, oh, there it is. It should, Known for eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. 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 That was the should, seed for the comic book that became They Live. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That is really cool. Uh, he does have a really. Um, he does explain why he wanted to work with Ray Nelson later in the quote. He says, "Ray sees so many things that I don't. I picked him because." of a comment he sent into Fantastic about a short story of mine, I knew at once that I had a hold of someone who, quote, used with my mind, and then some. For instance, I let him read the galleys of the novelette The Unteleported Man, and he's already made terrific suggestions informally as how it could best be expanded into 50,000 words. Um, being that hmm. we've seen how he did expand it, um, I'm not so sure they were the best ideas, but... I don't know. But, you know, uh, anyways, he really wanted to bring Ray in, and he obviously thought that they had similar concepts and ideas. And certainly, They Live is kind of a PKD-ish idea. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. So, he seems to... Uh, Paranoia, alien invasion, yeah. Yeah, so one of the funny things about this letter to Terry Carr... Uh, Anthony, if you could scroll down to where he's he's numbered out, he gives like actual like options. Here's what I could do, Ace. Number uh, one, where you have oh, <laughs> expand the unteleported man solo, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. 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 Number two, expand it in collaboration with Ray, but under my byline and give him no credit, though he deserves it and will let it be known anyhow, as I said before. And I see lots of trouble with that. Number three, expand it in open collaboration with Ace's approval, and that I would serve formal notification to Don via Scott, etc. Right, and um, uh, apparently Ace was not down for the collaboration this past week. And uh, Terry Carr wrote a hilarious uh, letter about the expansion. Uh, Anthony, can you yeah. read that? I discovered that what Phil had done was break into the narrative at its crucial point by having someone shoot the narrator with what amounted to an LSD dart, and then he spent 25,000 or 30,000 words telling us about the acid trip. It's true. The protagonist had, after which Phil returned to the original text, which had wrapped up the story. The material Phil wrote in the acid trip section had nothing to do with anything. 
It was, <laughs> it was a great description of an acid trip, but honestly, all of it was quite, quite irrelevant to the story. So I told Don that I thought Phil had expanded the story by adding a bunch of irrelevant bullshit. Kind of true. Don then read the <laughs> Don then read the the manuscript and he agreed with me. So he made an arrangement with Phil whereby Ace would publish only the original novella as half of an Ace double. Though as I recall, Phil got paid as much money as he would have if he'd explained his novella to a no- sorry. As, That's this one. <clears throat> as if he'd expanded his novella to a novel that Ace would have published with pride. Now I just want to take a, a second and point out that. Reading this book, I thought maybe I had suffered some kind of brain damage in between the last book I read because I struggled so hard to keep up with what was going on. And it makes me feel better to know that it's not just that I'm slow. (laughs) (laughs) That this shit is all over the place. Oh no, it goes even further than that. We'll we'll get there, too. Alright, go ahead, David. Uh, So yeah, Don Wolheim basically read the expanded manuscript, I imagine he went down to Terry Carr's office and was like, yeah, fuck this. <laughs> Just fucking pay him, and we'll do it as an ace double. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, Josie do it with Slave Girls of Orion 4 by someone yep. else. Well, I got, uh, yeah. the one I have is Dr. Oh. Futurity with, a. Uh, the unteleported man. Yeah, that, yeah that's. The Is that a much time. much later one? Yeah, that's a later edition. Um, the thing, the thing is, though, if I can just jump in for a sec, didn't Phil didn't didn't Phil think that uh, what he had done was in fact really good, and that he he had uh, you know the 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 new material that was dumped in the middle of it. He he it, it was. You know, he was experimenting with LSD and all that. And he said, well, you know, he, or he said to himself and doubtless to the editors, well, this is what happens. You know, <laughs> this is realism. Right. Uh, uh, I want readers to... This is real life. Uh, right. Exactly. Yeah. That, yes. From what I had read, that was what Philip K. Dick was telling his friends. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, in fact, we have this quote here where Phil K. Dick wrote a letter to Scott Meredith, his literary agency, and he said, and I quote, Don's reaction to the expanded unteleported man must have been as great surprise to you as it was to me. In the view of your earlier remark to me that I had nothing to fear, in fact, that my fears were unfounded, a rather ironic statement that my fears were justified. So, he did know that he was taking a risk, but he thought it was probably pretty good, and he also thought that the literary agency would be just as shocked as he was that Don Wolfgang was like, no. Um, <laughs> I should say, too, anytime I ever say anything about Philip K. Dick and what his intentions were, uh, uh, even if we have, he said exactly, in textual form, I'm always... Uh, uh, apprehensive about it because for as, you know, nutty as he could be sometimes, I think he was more conscious of cultivating his persona and, uh, 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 the yeah. mysteriousness, the mysteriousness of his persona as an author, no matter what he did. Well, we, we've, we've uh, talked uh, about that, that he lied all the time in interviews. Jump in on that real quick because I agree with you, Dave. Uh, when I interviewed Tessa Dick at, uh, in Colorado, she mentioned that Phil would 
oftentimes make stories sound better than they were. Right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. He was he was full of shit, basically. Exactly. When it, yeah. And when, yeah, it, he, when he, it came he, down he, to he it, liked, he liked that. I, you know, I knew that a little bit. Yeah. I I, I don't have a I don't have a problem with it, but you know the everyone should know that. When you hear Phil K. Dick talk about something in an interview, he might be full of shit. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why the letters are a little bit better. Like, the letters between him and the editors, and it's awesome that we have so many of them, because I think they're a little... I mean, you could see sometimes in the letters how he doesn't quite understand how other people perceive his work at times. But mm-hmm. he's at least being honest about how he feels about it. We have one more quote from another, um, well, we have two more long quotes about it, but, uh, we're not going to go through all of them, but the next quote I think is good. Uh, Anthony, can you take it from the ellipses where it says, and it has been some time? Sure. <clears throat> and it has been some time since I was capable of turning space opera out. The, un- the unteleported man, in its original form in Fantastic, was just about it. The end of the line for me in that direction. However, when I went to expand it for Ace, I did not pat it. Yeah, no shit. A suggestion which is, at best, an insult as to my integrity, but to transform it from what was actually not a novel at all, but a long story into a true novel, which I did. And the far-out elements which I added, which were not there in the original all which Don objects to, were necessary if the piece became a true novel and not merely a longer story. There's a real irony here, too, because a much better case could be made against my additions than the one Don chose to make. Fundamentally, the additions follow the lines laid down in my ace novel, The Game Players of Titan, which Don nominated for the Hugo. Yeah, so he thought that the additions were necessary to make it a longer piece. Um, which uh, I'm not so sure about, but he at least was able to, quote, call them far out elements. This was in a letter. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this does speak to what his feelings were about it anyways. It is important to get a get a feeling for, for what he was thinking. Um and then we have a longer statement. I don't necessarily have to go into that one, but, um, you know, he didn't want to, he did say in there that he did not really want to fight with Don Wolheim about this one because he was worried about future contracts. And we know that he has bowed down to Don's, um, you know, editorial advice most of the time. Um, a classic case where he didn't was Martian Time Slip. Um, but then again, Eye in the Sky was completely, you know, we went into this at length in the uh, interview with Betsy Wolheim. Uh, but, you know, his ability to uh, fight Don on some things and not fight him at other times was, was really all over the place, but he seemed to accept uh, not expanding it originally. But... Um, after his death, uh, people were interested in getting the expansion, uh, published. And unfortunately, um, you know, the big, uh, uh, hey, hey, David, can I ask a question quick? Did he ever get to a point 
in his career before he died because he really didn't Blade Runner really gave him a little bit of fame and then he died, you know. Uh, at some point, did he get to a point where he could say, hey, to his editors, you know, fuck you, this is what we're doing? Or was there always a tension there and he had to pick his battles? It was back and forth. Was it and always? Well, he... Even later in his career? Early in his ace career, he had, uh, like in the 50s, he never did. Right, uh, right. But upon the publication, when he got rejected on Time on a Joint, um, and then was able to find a hardcover publisher um, that gave him a little bit of cachet with Wolheim because he was able to take books like Time on a Joint, Man in the High Castle, Martian Time Slip. Those were ones he was able to publish without Don Wolheim. Yeah. And the most famous case really is the, the battle that he and Wolheim had over Martian Time Slip. Which was, and we all agree that Don Wilhelm was correct because the reason he didn't want to publish, he told Philip K. Dick on Martian Time Slip, you need to move this a hundred years in the future because there's no way there's going to be a Mars colony in 1994. And, uh, Phil Dick refused to change the date of Martian Time Slip. And Wilhelm rejected the book just because of the year. Huh. And, uh, then, of course, it went on to get a, uh, published by Valentine, which was the first time that he had gone to the competitor. We talked with Betsy Wolheim about um, Valentine and Ace were constantly battling over authors, so that had to be a flex move uh, uh, for Phil O.K. Dick to go to Valentine with uh, Martian Time Slip. So there was definitely, he was doing that. He was flexing at the time, but... Um, I don't think he, there were certain words, I'm sure with this one, he felt like the space operaness of it, he wasn't going to be able to move that anywhere else but Ace. And I think that's what he was thinking. And even in the set, like in the 70s with his later work, he he, was, he never got, he never achieved autonomy where he could basically dictate terms. Yeah. No, no. And uh, if you, when when our Betsy Wilhelm interview comes out, she, she talks about how, um, one thing is Don Wilhelm continued to publish Dick up until his death, even though he was not never considered a commercial art, uh, commercial author for them. They never saw him as a books as, as somebody who moved units. But Wilhelm believed in him, so he continued to publish him. Um, but yeah, so how this book became Wise Inc. is the next part of the story. So. In 1983, uh, Berkeley Books, uh, so Ace um, lost the rights to the Unteleported Man somewhere around there. And in 1983, uh, Russ Galen was trying to sell all of Phil K. Dick's works on behalf of his estate. And uh, when he was still alive, he had talked to Russ Galen about expanding Wise Agents all in Divine Invasions, the conversations, you know, little bits about this, is one that he had wanted to uh, get the expanded parts out. Um, And it was something they talked about doing before he died. However, they didn't do any of the work of compiling it until, you know, before he passed away. So, one of the things about what a mess this book is, is that a lot of it was compiled by Russ Galen and the literary estate, which I believe Patrick Williams, he's the guy who has the um, the afterword in the end. 
who has since passed away. Uh, he was in Encinitas, by the way. Um, Paul Williams, who is the literary state executor. And I don't really know his relationship to Philip K. Dick. I looked it up. I tried to get information about it. And um, I was well, talking to him on the podcast. He hung, he hung up, didn't he, with, at his place for, uh, you know, during the, uh, drug, the drug years? And, and he wrote the book Only Apparently Real, uh, which is, right. uh, I've been studied, right. right. And he was in a documentary I saw somewhere, and it's older. Yeah. Where it talks about hanging out with Phil. Yeah, and I did really want to try to get him on the podcast, but he died in 1987. So, <laughs> so you yeah. were a bit late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I still got further with him than Russ Galen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, speaking of Russ Galen, he sold the acquired rights. He had sold the rights to Berkeley in 1979, before, obviously, when Philip K. Dick was still alive, and to the Unteleported Man. So there is an edition in 1979 of the Unteleported Man, which was the third edition. The second edition is the one that Larry has in his paws. Um, that was a dozy do with Dr. Bushirity. Um, Dr. Dr. White Knight. Yeah, right there. And um, for whatever reason, uh, you know, the expansion hung around, but Berkeley wanted to publish, after his death, they wanted to publish the expanded version, but there were three gaps that were once they started putting in and following Dick's notes as to like how he wanted to expand it, because what he did was the expansion starts, there's an additional opening chapter. The opening chapter of Lysing was part of the expansion, chapter one. And then at chapter seven, the expansion starts from chapter seven until sometime, I think around chapter 16. So it's like 7 through 16 are the expansion. Uh, and normally, I think people are pretty used to the uh, nonlinear narrative. Uh, and I know, David, that's something you'd like to do. Uh, you know, it's obviously made famous by Quentin Tarantino. But usually writers do that for stories, to, to make the story make sense. Sure. I'm not quite sure here what's going on, <laughs> but we know that once they put it all together, there were three gaps, there were three parts that they just couldn't make sense of. And here's where it gets confusing. So the estate decided to hire science fiction writer John Slandek to write filler. Who is Slandek? Uh, Slandic is a... Is it Slandic? S-L-A-D-E-K? Slandic? Yeah. Yeah. I still don't... Don't know who he is. I've read certain stories of his, but I haven't read any of his longer words. Okay. But he was hired by the estate to write the bridge, to write the gaps. Right? And then Berkeley published it with the tagline, the world-famous classic now uncensored for the first time. And Terry Carr was pissed off because it's not that they censored it. It's not that they were like, no one should read this LSD dart stuff. They just <laughs> thought it was dumb. <laughs> so, David, you so, said... you said, so Incidentally, 
Here's a John. I just got this. Oh wow! John Sladek, the repro uh, from the SF Gateway stuff. Uh, yeah. Series, reproductive system, respect, and TikTok. I've never read any of them. <laughs> I just saw it online and got it randomly. You said seven through sixteen. Seven through sixteen, I think. Because that's that's chapter eight through fifteen. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of books yeah. right there. It starts at eight. Eight. Yeah. And here's the thing. That's still a lot of book. It literally starts from like one sentence. There's yes. like one sentence where it takes off. He did it in the middle of a sentence. You want to know what the sentence is? Acrid yes. smoke billowed about him, stinging his nostrils. <laughs> and it's reiterated in, in chapter 15 when the. Uh, uh, so it's that much. Picks back up. That much of the book. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yes. Um, and uh, so here's the thing. With the, here's where it gets really fucking confusing because. Um, Eventually, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Williams was digging around in the papers that are in Fullerton, which we could, if the world ever, uh, opens up again. Yeah. Fullerton. Which was going to be a field trip for us, but not anytime soon. Yeah, right. Uh, Paul Williams was digging through the papers and he found, uh, Dick's first typed version of the straight out of the typewriter version of the expansion, which had all the gaps that were missing. <laughs> so Berkeley published an edition with the slant deck. Sladek. 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 I like slant deck better. Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah. Slant deck. It, that's more of a, a Philip K. Dick name. Yeah. So the Sladek editions were put into the Berkeley edition, and then uh, after that was published and out there for years, they uh, first the British publisher added Phil K. Dick's changes and the gaps. But I think there were two of the three gaps they found in there. One of the gaps I think Phil K. Dick never filled. So it was actually two out of the three. So then, the version that we have, the Mariner edition and the Vintage editions, are restored with Phil K. Dick's two parts, and Sladek's parts are cut out, which means there's one bridge in there that makes no fucking sense. It's not you, Andrew. Just one. Just one. Just one. <laughs> just one. Okay. Supposedly. Yeah. Allegedly um, just one. Yeah, and it was apparently the British publisher's idea to get Sladek um, uh, to do the bridging material, and he wrote an introduction to their edition of it. Um, I'd like to see if there was a, one available online. I couldn't get it in time, so I said, fuck it. Um, but that is the complicated publishing history of... Lies Incorporated. So, dickheads, that means it's time for the... Oh, no. Time for the... Anthony? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it, our, our typical story breakdown doesn't work for online, David. 
<laughs> I told you, Larry, just put in some Parliament Funkadelic for that. Wow, 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 wow. I'm going to... Yeah, I'm going to... I'm going to put in the big payback. Payback. James Brown. I don't know karate, but I know crazy. <laughs> this story breakdown is going to upset some of you because... I didn't read the book. feel comfortable this time doing <laughs> the story breakdown. So, it's broken down. Um, it's broken down. Our, our story breakdown has broken down. It is on the side of the road like a Ford. All right, so uh, here's what happened. I don't care. That's what happened. You know, you know what? And I, I have not planned on this at all, but maybe it would be appropriate considering the nature of this text. So I take, you know, uh, uh, far more notes than I actually end up writing, be it for books or articles or whatever. Right on. I have about six lines here of notes on this text that I could <laughs> read. Yeah, do it. Please. Absolutely. Do it. And I will read the notes verbatim. All right. <laughs> verbatim. All right, here we go. Let's hear PKD podcast, Lies Inc. Notes. Lies Inc. equals police agency. Whale's mouth equals teleplanet that is utopian, fake news, plus dystopian reality. Rats are beginning? Question mark. I would like to see it play out a la maze of death. Abba, hashtag Mercer, from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. <laughs> Demi equals 2014. PKD hat These are divided by semicolons. Space Nazis. Recurrent female objectification. Peril worlds, drug trips. Paranoia, Roman Empire, Channel Spartans. More ideas than characterization. Ending vague. R.E. Fate. That's it. All right. There you go. That's like what happens, right? That is the story breakdown. <laughs> so, uh, so anyways, um, I did a similar thing to uh, David uh, Wilson uh, as far as I marked off the themes that I thought were interesting. Oh, yeah. And I, I thought. Yeah. I wrote Police State, Unteleported Storyline, World building, solving population, lying government, cool writing, terror worlds, and the book out of time. Wow. Those, those were mine. Well, let's do it. So, where does this story start? So, the story starts. Anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> the story starts with a chapter that introduces Lies Incorporated, which it's a hilarious name for an organization that's like calling your used car, uh, your used car lot shitty cars we're trying to sell you. <laughs> uh, Shyster Inc. <laughs> Shyster Inc. It's like the, the name tells you exactly what they're doing. And I do like the first chapter because it's about inserting, um, it's making you, they're making people think certain things by inserting concepts into their subconscious through their dreams. Hmm. And I thought that was really neat. That's a neat PKD thing. Yeah. And I I loved the line. There's two things that I love about that first chapter. There's I love the line where he says, 
Um, but the police are our friends. <laughs> or, was, or was that idea beamed into me subliminally, he wondered. Suddenly, <laughs> the police are their friends. The hell they are! <laughs> um, I thought that was a really interesting part. Well, we have, we have that now. We have Law and Order. That show is definitely showing you that the cops are your friends. <laughs> They're always right. The lawyers always get everything right. Yeah. And, and they only break the law for the good of the people. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's all for your own good. Did any of you guys get a sense that Lie... Because Lies Incorporated, this sort of nefarious, I guess, police organization. Is it private? Is it corporate? Mm. It's corporate. It is. Well, it's incorporated, so I would assume. It is, it is but so there's no sort of general... I didn't... The thing is, Lies Incorporated is barely in the book, of course. Oh yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's so that's... we don't we don't get a clear sense. <laughs> yeah, that was a problem for me because I was like, oh yeah, Lies Inc., and then I go a few chapters and go, they're back, but what do they do again? Right, right. Yeah. So there, uh, and so in the book, there's no government oversight or anything like that. Like, but or are they the government? It seems like it seems like it's all. That's the thing. Of course, nothing is really, in this sense anyway, uh, defined. But it seems like it's a kind of corporate wild west. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so one of the other interesting things in that opening chapter, and this is where you can tell that it's the the additional parts, because the quote far out stuff um, <laughs> is really seen. There's a part where. Um, he's thinking about the things that have been added to his mind, and he's kind of having the trippy stuff happen. And he says, Lies Incorporated did transmit microwave-boosted telepathic information to him in his sleep. Would it have to do it with rats? With rats? I'm a goddamn rat, he realized. <laughs> I go to sleep. Um... I go back millions of years to when I was once a rat. Um, I think rat thoughts. And there's this whole weird rat thing. I don't really know why. I, I don't get it. Yeah, in the in the first chapter, they they accidentally beam like rat knowledge into his head, right? Isn't that the... Isn't, uh, there's something like that. Well, the first time I read it, I recall thinking years ago, I recall thinking... Okay, so he's setting us up. They're experimenting on rats by instilling them in some capacity with human consciousness. And, yeah. Uh, oh, and it accidentally got to him. Yeah. But, I mean, of course, it's that's. I don't think that's what's going on. Oh, okay. It, it's okay. never played out. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, so that first chapter is a part of the expanded part, so ah. not a part of the, the unteleported man thing. So then we get into the unteleported Yeah, well... Is that the second chapters? Is the actual first chapter? The, yes, the second chapter is is where the original Unteleport Man started with the right. cop thing <laughs> and the receptionist, and so then um, we really get. I liked some of the world building with the um, Unteleported storyline. For me personally, I like the Unteleported Man parts of this book quite a bit. Hmm. And because of how, the way I read this book, because I knew the history of it, because I read the afterword, knew the history, 
I was able to kind of separate in my mind, like, oh, this is the unteleported man parts, and this is the the Lysing part. This is the sorry about that. This is the first time. This is the first time I read Lysing or unteleported man. So, um, I thought of it kind of in the context of just reading it for the um, for the original novella, and I do like those parts. Hmm. So I like the idea that he is so he wants to. You know, um, Rockman Applebaum, great Phil K. Dick name. Rockman? Is that his Rock name? Rockmail. Rockmail. Rockmail Applebaum. And he's just trying to make that fit it as Jewish as possible, right? In, in opposition to the Yeah, right. right. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, so Rockmail, um, has this concept that he's like, I'm going to expose that the whale mouth colony is totally bullshit, that people are teleporting there, and there's that whole great scene with the space Nazis, where it's basically um, comparing it to walking into the gas chambers with the Zycon B, which uh, Evan Lambie pointed out in his podcast only happened in Oculus. Not all the, uh, that's just history nerd stuff, but, uh. Shout out to Evan Lampy. Yeah, shout out to Evan, our boy Evan. And, uh, you know, one of the things about, um, this whole storyline, I really like the concept that there is this one guy who's gonna take 18 years going each way just to prove that that's some bullshit going on. I almost, I just, I like that concept on his own, that this guy would be like, yeah, I'm just gonna go learn Latin and Greek for 18 years, and fly to Formalot, and, uh, prove that you're, you're bullshit. Alright, well. Wait, wait, is I, it, so like, the pro, the protagonist, correct me if I'm wrong, so he is motivated by, not idle, but aggressive curiosity, is that I, well, I think no, he, aggressive contrarianism. <laughs> no, well, I thought he was upset because, in some way, shape, or form, that's what I'm he getting. was losing business. I, I don't know. David. He's losing business, and there's people going in there and never returning. And he, he I think he thinks, oh, like, right. So he's in opposition to the the, the Telcor Corporation, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. because people can only teleport one way, and so they say. So they say, and we're only getting one side of the story, and everything just looks too perfect, and he doesn't believe it, right? So wasn't he involved in the past with uh, um, the space travel industry? Yes, and they have only one ship left, I believe. Yeah. It's the... The Amphalos. The the Amphalos, yeah. And it's the... um, um, You know, it's... uh, at some point, like, uh, that's the only ship they have, so they're kind of in, in bad business shape, and then everyone's basically like, dude, what, what are you doing? You're gonna go all the way there on one trip, and then he's like, hey, if people can only go one way, there might be people that want to come back. It's good business. <laughs> um, which is kind of silly. Um, so the next thing I have is the world building, and I think there's really good example of world building on pages 20 and 21 of the um, Mariner edition. And um, you know, all the um, they're not um, 
kind of that. There's not as much of there. There's definitely um, all the artifacts and the homeopaths and all like the regular uh, deck technologies are all here. Um, but one of the things that was going on was that the population of Earth is at seven billion. And here, and he's assuming that at 7 billion people will have to be living in domes and stuff like that. <laughs> and here we are <laughs> without domes. Little did he know, we're just not leaving the house. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, who could have predicted Tiger King in the pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, so... But one of the most interesting parts of the world building I found was on page 21 of the Mariner edition. I love this. It had taken 10 more years, but in the brackets of 1982, the brackets of 1982, <laughs> uh, it obtained from the U.S. and the USSR what we wanted, a united free Germany, called by its present hmm. name, just chock full of them and Mach. Uh, <laughs> And under Reinhold, Deutschland had played dirty pool from the start. No one was really surprised. East and West were busy erecting tents, were major, major pops sends, population centers, for, uh, he, he made sure to point that out. Population centers such as Chicago and Moscow had existed, hoping to God that the Sino-Cuban wing of the CP did not Take it or not taking advantage of the situation and move in. So this is a super Germany future. Huh. Um, and uh, so he's basically presenting that Germany has become the dominant like country or superpower. But not modern, not not our modern Germany. This is uh, nineteen. No, nineteen. No. Uh, 88 Germany. Yeah, and they were not full Nazis in here, but they kind of are. Oh, so the, no, this is, uh, 1940s Germany? What, what are you saying? So you're, you, no, I'm saying, you're saying I'm Germany, saying but which Germany are you talking about? So this future takes place in this future, Germany has united again between East and West, and they become the dominant superpower on Earth. Okay, but... Um, but, of course, it's extrapolated 20 years after... World right, War right, II, right, right? Right, in the early 60s, so about 20 years after the end of the war. Yeah. Uh, you know, incidentally, I wonder if... Has anybody done a reading, I haven't looked into it, between or the... Or said both lies ink and uh, what's the movie with the space Nazis? Iron Sky. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Yeah. So right, then comes on page twenty-three, the uh, most cringeworthy part of the whole book. Uh, for you. And this is well, no, this is really cringeworthy for anybody. Trust me. Um. It had suggested, ironically, an imitation of Swift by a, by a fiction writer of the 1950s that the, quote, Negro question in the U.S. be solved by building giant factories which made Negroes into canned dog food. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> like I remember. So it's a, all right. The problem with 
Swiftons among the Irish be solved by the eating of children. Swift himself lamenting as a final irony that he had no children of his own to offer market for consumption. Grizzly, but so like so a, a modest proposal. Where is it? Right, Mo- is moderate? Like, modest? I can't modest. remember. Modest. Modest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which he, he talked a lot about modest proposal in the uh, World Jones made as well too, right? Yeah. Which is his up his his uh, Nazis are bad book. Um <laughs> and uh so so then the the balance so the idea here is is that he's trying to put forward is that um Rockman Applebaum believes that the German Rockmail create David Rockmail. just say Applebaum. Yeah. <laughs> just say fuck it and say the last name. Applebaum. So I think the idea that that he's trying to investigate here is that they've created the teleport technology to basically solve the question of the population so the Germans can make make room in a Harry or um, Harry Harrison way. Um, but instead of like turning them into soil and green, he's, they're sending them through um, to whale's mouth and um, they're disappearing and they're not coming back. So he wants to he wants to find them, right? Okay. So, interesting concept. <laughs> um for for uh for building the novel. Uh the Latin government, the the whether it's German or not, like the whole Latin government thing is a huge theme in this novel, which uh plays out quite a bit throughout. Um and I think there's a really good example on page fifty four in the Mariner edition, but uh that's where we first kind of see because they come up with this whole like um their answer to Rockman, uh, uh, Rockmail, Applebaum, they're going to create this. I thought this scene was hilarious. The Flying Dutchman Day, where um, they were going to greet him on November 24th, 2032, and have like a whole celebration. And they turn it into a marketing campaign that you can teleport to the to Whale's Mouth and greet <laughs> Applebaum when he gets there. And um, nice. it's kind of funny because they're... They're making fun of him. And I, I thought that part was hilarious. And um, they had this uh, President Omar Jones was their figurehead president at the colony. And they're saying, like, hey, we've got a billion people here and we can take another billion. We're fine. <laughs> he said, we need men, good, strong men who can do any kind of work. Are you that man? Able, willing, uh, get up and go over 18 years of age, and so there's this kind of hilarious marketing um, for uh, the whale's mouth colony, and I really, <laughs> I really liked that part. Um, so I think the line government is a huge theme in there. I don't know how anybody else thought about that stuff. I thought it was hilarious. I thought that stuff was really good. Um, but that's mostly from the unteleported man storyline, hmm. right? So, I don't know, does anybody else have any thoughts on... on so, so, uh, so our main character is, like, John Henry, right? He is, he is doing this old-fashioned thing to prove that it's, that it's sort of better than the, the new way of, of teleporting. Yeah? Right. Yeah? He's gonna do it old, yeah, he's gonna do it old school, and he does get made fun of quite a bit, and that's with the whole Flying Dutchman thing. Right, yeah. 
and um, which is kind of a really antiquated um, way for people to make fun of the thing. And I, I don't fully, I couldn't explain the Flying Dutchman thing with um, clarity of what it means, but I got it. I understood what they were talking about, but the reference is... Yeah, there's, there's, there's a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> One of the things with Applebaum is that um, not that Philip K. Dick's characters are generally particularly round. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is fine. I mean, I, I have no... That's I, a I, polite I, way of putting it. <laughs> round or flat character. But Applebaum seems like a pretty flat character. So if pressed to describe him, I, I don't know what I'd say. Yeah. I don't know. Other than when he sees women, he notices their tits. Every fucking time. <laughs> Every time. And it's over you know? the secretary's tits. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, Dick does that, he guy. does that all the time. Yeah, yeah Dave, we, we talk about that every episode. Is I mean, <laughs> the Cosmic Puppets ends like a Naked Gun movie. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Driving through well, Boob Mountain. This is not just Philip K. Dick, obviously. Um, I know the Hugo's There podcast, they have a, they have a segment called Boob Talk, where they just, um, you know, point out all the different times when writers... Oh no, it was, a, it was really popular in the 50s and 60s to point out boobs, because, like, like we've said in the past, the, uh, the audience they thought they were going for was like 16 year old boys. Yeah. So, and you know, I was thinking about this rather concertedly this morning in preparation for this podcast, so I might as well uh, recount it. Yeah. So back then, you know, porn culture, there's none of that. We, yeah. We, we could get all, anything we can imagine and more. It, it, you know. Right. <laughs> but so that you know, just by typing in two letters. You don't even have to put in the full word. No. You put in T-I, and tons of tits are going to show up. So, right. uh, you guys. I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. I all of us, I think, talking to each other. We remember the sort of pre-porn culture. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, uh-huh. Anthony. Uh, 33, 33. Okay, maybe a little bit for you. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when I was a kid, I had to work for my porn really hard. And no, all right. Yeah. What I would do is, you know, read through books and try to get it in textual form. And, right. Uh, yeah. May, I'm well, sure they, they scrambled cinematics and all that. Reading, it was more like you had to know a guy who found his dad's stash in his closet. Oh, yeah, for sure. You had to go on like this <laughs> hunt for it. I was thinking about this the other day, and I'm like, these kids now to be the 15 year old boy must be insane. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I was looking at like you know mall magazines and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, well, this dude catalog's looking pretty sharp. There's yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. It was Dick being a perv, but uh, it was a. Oh no, the frequency with which it happens in his ooze. There's got, there's a little. He's a little focused on the one part. Just on the one part. Well, but what's interesting, just real quick, you guys, is that I've noticed this in the last few books we've read. Not only is there a very, very, like, focused, like, hyper-focused way of describing tits, it's he, all the secretaries and all, like, the kind of supporting women characters all have very strange outfits, whereas the rest of the, like, big playing cast don't typically yeah. do. And, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if anybody else has noticed that but me. Though. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, literally and metaphorically a full-bodied objectification. Yeah. No. You know? Yeah, it wasn't just him, though. I mean, like like I said, uh, it's funny because I'm Hugo, Hugo girl. They definitely talk about it a lot. And I noticed, like, the, like, I think they said one of the worst was Philip Jose Farmer. Mm-hmm. Was actually worse. Um, yeah, but uh, or, or, was Farmer <laughs> making fun of it? Until you're... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, Farmer is usually making fun of that shit, so. That could be true. But anyways, um, so back to Lysing. <laughs> um, so there's some interesting things, you know, with the plot of this book. We get to the transition. So Applebaum's going to go. So then the weird thing about the transition, about the way that they put it in, and this could be the <laughs> <laughs> the bad, bad connective tissue that's going on in in this story, but bad connective tissue, David. If this book were represented <laughs> as a, a live human being, it would look like something that fell out of like a Cronenberg movie. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, like Brundlefly. It, it is literally <laughs> the thing at the end of the brood. Oh no, <laughs> that's bad. Uh, <laughs> that is bad. So, so once it gets to the connection, long live the new flesh. It feels like it feels like they're like, oh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go prove it, I'm gonna take this trip. But no, really, I'm actually gonna go through the teleporter because I'm just going to do. And then um, once he gets through the teleporter, that's when we get to the bonus stuff with the LSD dart that gets. Um, uh, Wait, so he. He doesn't even do the thing that he's supposed to do? Is that what you just said? He doesn't do the he doesn't do the eighteen year trip? Well what Well that's kind of murky mur- mur- because I s- forgot he even went on a trip. And then was like, is he still there? So i I don't know if it's is it spe- ever specified that he actually made the journey? I don't recall that, but there is a denouement in the end where things are explained. I don't know if he went on the trip or not, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is the worst fucking John Henry story I've ever heard. <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, is that you kind of have to think of this as two different books. And if you think of it as Unteleported Man on its own, it's better. But, and then I... My feeling is that I like the additional stuff on its own as just good right is is some pretty interesting writing and storytelling stuff. Sure, it doesn't fucking make a lip fence as one book. <laughs> um, so that's the thing is you kind of have to think of this as like the weird um, trunk novel that came out after he died, you know, and that's what it is. Like uh, maybe if he would if he had still been alive in '83, they would have smooth some of this out. Sure. Who knows? Uh, so, I'm I, to... Well, I, I'll hold this question off, I guess, to the... David, how much more of the stuff do you have on your end that you want to talk about? Uh, just a little... Just a few more things. All right, I'll hold off on my question to you guys, then. Okay. So, there's the, the LSD dart, which I really like the actual introduction of it on page 82 of... Mariner edition, and you know this idea that 
there would be this weaponized LSD is kind of just being like super pro LSD, which is kind of crazy if you've read Three Stigmata Palmer, Palmer Eldridge. Um, it's not like a, a, a really like fun portrait of LSD. <laughs> and, um, and then this isn't either. It's a weapon that's used to like kind of take this guy to insanity. And so like the idea is he gets out of the teleport, the teleport, and then he gets shot with this, uh, LSD dart. To me, what I think... So, like, right away? This is something that right happens away. right away? Yeah, like, he, right. he gets off the ship, and then... Wow. And yeah. I think it, it describes it as... <laughs> it hits his wrist in the vein exactly in the right place. <laughs> well, first of all, LSD doesn't need a vein. Directing pins as it spun at him. It was, he realized, as he watched it descend towards him, an LSD tip dart. It's funny, he knew what it was when it was coming at him. <laughs> yeah. The hallucinogenic alkaloid derivative constituted or had constituted ever since its introduction into the field as a weapon of war. So it was kind of a weapon of war. <laughs> a unique instrument for reducing the enemy to a condition to which he is absolutely neutralized. Instead of destroying him, the LSD... Introvert, intravenously by dart destroyed his world. Huh. Yeah, it's not that he was like, cool man. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, so that he gets shot by the LSD. And to me, what would be more interesting is if all this mind warpy stuff just happened because he teleported millions of light years. Right? Yeah. If, if, well, if it, 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 it was a natural thing. Yeah. It suggested, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that, uh, one of the after effects or, uh, of teleporting has to do with some sort of trippy, uh, mind fuck sort of thing. Or, or fuels that fire. Was that suggested? Well, no, what I think is suggested, now correct me if I'm wrong, because again, <laughs> I'm reading this fucking wacky ass book. I got the idea that when you go through teleport, your mind gets expanded a little bit and you're able to kind of sense the para-worlds, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, so he, he just quit, is he, no, because he's not, he hasn't teleported. But then, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> is everybody sitting down discussing this? They all have their own unique para-world kind of teleport experience. Was that the purpose of that? whole chapter where they're discussing the different colored para-worlds, because there's para-world blue, right? Right. Yes. And then there's a para-world it's, it's like white or however they describe it. I don't know, guys. I'm, this book made me feel like I got hit in the head with a pipe. Well, no, a lot of it reminded me of, you know, I took drugs when I was younger, hallucinogenics and so forth, and what do you do? You sit around with your friends in a room and try to figure things out. And, you know, for a good... 50 pages, that's what I saw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Talking to different people who are wandering in and out of the room, and, uh, oh, there's a TV over there, there's some interesting things happening here, and right. so on and so forth, yeah. Yeah. Right, which is one of the things that I enjoyed about the book is that, or with the expanded stuff, is that I do think, on its own, it's an interesting short story, basically. Novella. Of, of a, you know, some mind fuckery. And, and that's, that's good on its own. It just doesn't make sense with the unteleported man part. Sure, the, and the, the two elements don't match. Exactly. And yeah. that's why you can imagine 
John Wolheim sitting in his office in New York reading about the LSD dart and like the parallel worlds and just being like, you can imagine him just like dropping the manuscript on the like, shit. Yeah. But e- <laughs> equally, I enjoy imagining Philip K. Dick sitting across the desk room saying, well, what do you fucking mean? It makes perfect sense. <laughs> makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, there is an interesting, on page 122 of the Mariner edition, there's a part where, where they're, where, um, Wretched Borg Man is a character. <laughs> the, the last two dip books we should have read before we did that, the, the names, the, the name side episode. <laughs> Borb Man? Borg it doesn't beat Dr. Daddy Sweetscent. That's my favorite one. <laughs> I love me some Daddy Sweetscent. Yeah. Okay, so this quote on 122. I'm quite satisfactorily angered in reality. Take my word for it. Are you? Every person in this room is just as involved in an involuntary, subjective, psychotic fantasy superimposed over the normal frame of reference as I am. Some of you possibly even more. I don't know. Who knows what it t- what takes place in other people's minds? And frankly, I don't care to judge. I don't think I can. <laughs> um, there's also a line on that page that says, "Go in there and look at that dreadful parody of a president." Is that what you prefer to do? Which is kind of funny. Um, so yeah, there's some interesting stuff with reality there. Um, and like I said, I like some of the elements of those parts. They just yeah, they don't. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> a, um, I don't know. I mean, so yeah. I mean, it, it is funny to think of like Don Wilhelm sitting there reading this, but it, it you can tell that Dick was trying to do interesting things with, um, you know, he had already written Three Stigmata at this point, you know, so he'd already sure. done his LSD book, but you know, who knows? I mean, like, I think he. I think this would have been more interesting if he hadn't done Three Stigmata, like, if he hadn't already had, like, the Bad Trip book, but, you know, nonetheless. That's, uh, the, well, that's the rub for me, though, with stuff like this. I mean, I care less about, you know, there's only 50 billion books out there. I care less about the content of books than, in this case, Dick trying to do and continue to do new things, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, that other people weren't doing, and you know, he kind of got away with it. Yeah, when people do stuff like this and get away with it. That's the best. Yeah. So, um, in what he did get away with in here, and one of the weirdest aspects of the book, and one of my favorite parts because it's kind of weird body work, is the um, the eye eater character. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what is this? Yeah, Larry, you would have loved this. <laughs> um, so there's a character. <laughs> Who eats his own eyeballs? What? <laughs> yeah, it's true. He eats his own eyeballs, and then they grow back, and he continually eats them. And um, he also is height. There's also oh yeah, because this is important. There's a book that has come through the teleporter that is from the future, I guess. And <laughs> you want the name? Yes. Yes. The, the true and complete economic and political history of new colonized land by Dr. Blood. Is it Blood? Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, I think it's Dr. Blood. L O O D E. Yeah. Yeah. So this book came through time and 
is telling the characters <laughs> what will happen right before it happens. And it's predetermined so they can't not do the things that are in the book, except the book then starts changing, like, in their hands, right? Which I thought was cool. Um, sure. But the, but the Eye Eater uh, is actually hiding the book from... Um, from Applebaum, <laughs> uh, inside his body. And so there's a great scene where, I like that. Really? The eye eater said, the eye eater said pleasantly. So the eye eater is saying things pleasantly. Um, the eye eater said pleasantly, Mr. Ben Applebaum, reach inside me and you will find a different edition of Dr. Bloom's text. A copy of the 20th edition, which I ingested some time ago. But as far as I can determine, not already dissolved by my gastric juices. Wow. <laughs> I think later uh, he also pulls a lady out of that thing too. <laughs> out of his if stomach. I correctly. Oh wow. What? No. One eighty nine. He just becomes a woman near the center of its body. Ah. It, wore, it wore a stiff white bra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Yeah. So, um, is this before? High, wait, when was Man in the High Castle? Uh, sixty-two. Sixty-two. Okay. All right, two years before, right? Four. Four. Because what? Well, and that's in what was the book in that? The, uh, the Grasshopper Lies Heavy. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, I think you know he's kind of riffing on that, I guess, but it, it's not as. Uh, Relevant uh, to this narrative as it is to Man of the High Castle. Right. It's uh, a book, book within the book. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, the uh, uh, Grasshopper was a history. This is what an economics book or what was it called? The yeah, it's a long, the true and complete economic and political history colonized land. Yeah, <laughs> which is the name of the colony uh, Wales Mouth. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a much more uh like a like a textbook almost. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, he's got to be making fun there, right? I yeah. Mean, even with the name New Colonized Land, which is ridiculous. So um so the thing of the eye eater thing is completely separate from the unteleported man parts, but and it but to me it's one of the funniest and inter most interesting and weird things in here. Um yeah, it's full on video drone. I love that. Yeah. So here's here. So we're getting close to like the the kind of like the end of the book. There's a weird escape in space that comes from the unteleported man part, where one of the characters just kind of like blows out in a spacesuit, and then like they pick him up, and they're like, "Yeah, you gotta take off your space." <laughs> and uh some of that stuff to me was really funny. Um, and one of the things that I liked about this book that I actually did like about this book is that if you just, ex this is a book that you just have to accept does not make any sense. Huh. Um, and it doesn't like really hold together. Unteleported man is a really on its own as a novella is a really good and interesting thing about lying governments and police states and, um, you know, and it's, it's an interesting space opera, pulpy kind of thing. Sure, it's a, I think it works. 
when you get into this expanded stuff, it's just fucking bananas. But the thing about it is, I think it's really well written for Dick. It just doesn't make mm-hmm. sense with the overall book. Right. Really fun and stuff like the Eye Eater and the LSD. It's really an the, oil and water kind of combination. So with, in that material, though, that uh, the, the dumps material, I, I, I noticed this throughout. It's never developed or sustained, but I can see Dick trying to reference the unteleported. He's trying every now and then he'll slip in there something trying to connect it to the dominant narrative. But then, of course, he moves immediately away from it. He goes, hmm. but there's evidence of that throughout that section. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it, it, it's, it's interesting because it's, uh, I mean, <laughs> the thing about it is. See, I like that. That makes sense to me. I like stuff like that. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Again, it's not my, uh, uh, it's probably in terms of what the dick novels, let's say that I really like. It's probably in the middle. I mean, I love right. Ubik, which is my favorite, has all kinds of weird things going on, but it's definitely more linear and it makes sense. And it ends on the proverbial ambiguous note, but at the same time, while there are loose ends, I mean, that novel is done, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, at a certain point, you have to just accept that um, that this was finished after his death, and, you know, I'm not saying that if he had been alive, he would have made sense of it, because I don't think he would have. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, at least he would have had some input or some say instead of uh, Sladek doing it and um, you know, and then just them accepting two-thirds of the bridges, you know, and sure. who knows? Who, who knows what we would have gotten? Um but at the same time, like it, it's, um, I don't know. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move us into final thoughts because um, for me, if you're talking about unteleported man by itself, um, I would give that four out of five space German or space Nazis. <laughs> and if you're talking about the expanded stuff that lies in all together, then I'm gonna give it. Uh, probably three eye-eater eyeballs out of five. Um, however, together, I, I I can't give it more than three because it's such a fucking mess, but it's a, it's a positive three that I really enjoyed lots of the moments in it. Uh, it is just as a coherent novel, I can't honestly give it more than, than three stars. Whereas I definitely laughed out loud lots of parts of this book. I definitely enjoyed it. There were definitely parts that I look back on, like the eye eater, that I just think are fucking cool. And here's the thing. We'll get into this in a moment. I think he could make a good movie out of this. I do. I think he could fix a lot of the, the, the bridge problems if you were a gap. Um, Anthony, next. Final thoughts. You know, I, I don't know if I can fairly critique this book from the lens of Dick's work that we've already read and we've kind of learned about Dick doing this podcast because some of it isn't written by Dick and one of some of the stuff that I had an issue with was I don't know if this was the same for you guys but the writing style shifted so much in certain areas for me that I would 
yeah. kind of confused and lose track of what was happening. No, no, you um, read the Mariner edition, right? Yeah. Yeah, Dick wrote all that. That's all Really? Okay. So, but it, it did feel strangely not Dick writing it to me, just because of the whole, like, just the way it was styled, which was odd, and I kind of struggled with, um, but I guess if I had to give, oh, I, probably, probably two out of five stars, because I just was too confused and too irritated that I couldn't follow what was going on to really enjoy it, but there are some good stuff. You just gave it stars? Yeah, I didn't have anything good this time. Oops. Anthony, give it something else. No, two pair worlds out of five, I guess. <laughs> okay, two pair worlds out of five, I'll take. I think we lost Dave. No, I'm back. Okay. That did kick me out for a sec. Alright, it's, it's to you, Dave. Uh, I will concur. First of all, I'll give it 2.8 tits out of five. <laughs> and uh, I will concur with Lawrence Sutton. Who if you guys, if you're familiar with the uh, Divine Invasions. I have it on my lap. Right I'm familiar now. with it, but I haven't. Oh, okay, read it. yeah, it's uh, it's probably my favorite book on Dick. Uh, it's been a little while since I've read it, but I remember reading it a few times and really liking it. Then at the end, he rates all of the books, and he he thinks that this he gave it five out of ten, I think. Um, and he even he is like this is, if not the weirdest, one of the weirdest uh, books that he's written. I think he just says damn weird. Um. So I will, uh, yeah, concur with him. Damn weird. And yeah. uh, Larry's not standing, sitting there, and he doesn't get a vote this time anyway. So <laughs> this is a vote. Uh, all right, so we have one segment to go. This is this is our this is our longest episode, you guys. Yeah. Really? Yep. Yeah, we're we're gonna. Yeah, I think. Step. Yeah, yeah, I think I in the Sky was our second longest, and before that, it was Three Stigmata. Yeah, well, we're yeah. quarantined, so we have an excuse. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. I can talk books all uh, day. That's fine with me. <laughs> so, okay, uh, movie treatment. Um, how would you do this as a movie? Who would you put in it? This might be hard. I do think that this could be a good adaptation because I think it could fix a lot of the problems. I would primarily focus on the unteleported man storyline. I would do very little of the expanded stuff, but I wouldn't completely ignore it because I think much like uh, Skater Darkling that has the weird aside, um, you could do if you rolled it in a little bit better and tightened it a bit and didn't go so long on it, you could do fun things with um, the expanded stuff with the. LSD darts and all that kind of stuff, just to preserve the weirdness of it. Um, but I would primarily focus on the unreported man storyline. And um, the regular host, you know me, uh, of course, our Rockman um, Apple, uh, Apple Bomb is going to be Guy Pierce. It has to be. <laughs> and who's your uh, director? Um, that's a little bit harder. I probably would hire, if I could get anybody to do this, uh, let's bring Winkletter back, because he did a good job of scanning Darkly. Let's, let's, um, let's not rotoscope it, but, um, hmm. we could rotoscope 
the LSD dart scene. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, I thought you. I thought you got rid of that. Um, but then, and the other thing I would do is, um, I I think with the expanded storyline, the only thing I really focus on is like that kind of insanity of the teleport thing. Maybe I would have fun with, and maybe have it be less of the LSD dart and more than just the teleport. But um, I would keep. Um, uh, Rockmail is the uh, main character. But whoever, him, I think. Who are the guys that that did the uh, uh, Spider-Man movie that into the Ripley. into the multiverse? Oh, Spider-Verse. Oh, Phil Lord Miller. Spider-Verse. Yeah, the, yeah, Phil Miller would be good. I feel like if if you're gonna have everyone coming out of this teleporter with a different like sort of weird view of reality. That's the guy you want filming, you know, doing animation for that kind of thing. Like a, a well, different a different view every time you see someone come out of the the teleporter. That would be kind of cool. Well, and we've been saying this for a while. We'd like to see a Philip K adaptation Philip K deck adaptation that focuses on the humor. Yeah, his per- um, a, a little bit more, and so I think, yeah, um, I think Phil Lord Miller would actually be a really good choice for because this is dream directors, right? Not who would realistically do it. Yeah, yeah. But but uh, somebody with comedy chops would not be a bad idea. <laughs> um, but you know who would actually be an amazing Rockman Applebaum? Actually, now that I think about it, um, Mark Macron. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Mark, Mark Merritt would be great. Uh, so guys, you know, Mark Merritt would be in a lot of dick adaptations, I think. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. He would. He would. So uh, we've now entered the phase of casting Mark Merritt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As of today. Uh, Anthony, you have any thoughts on, on, on adapting... Um, I didn't think too much about this primarily because I didn't like this book all that much. It, rest assured that I would cast Michael Shannon as the strange <laughs> tentacled pseudopodian monster because <laughs> I have to put Michael Shannon in everything. Not, not the Mr. Eyeball guy? That, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Um, right. uh, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, a Junji Ito manga adaptation might be kind of interesting for some of the weirder parts. But other than that, yeah, I got nothing. Dave? Well, you know that the eye monster, the eye guy, played by Doug Jones. He just would be. Voiced by Michael <laughs> Shannon. Um, how about you, I, I Well, first of all, David Lynch should direct every movie ever made. <laughs> uh, so I would have him make this movie. and But the Dune Lynch, Sans, yeah. voiceover... And right. <laughs> sans the produ- uh, of the constraints of all of the production folks that fucked it up for him and fucked that movie up. What? Uh, what? Not that this is the Lynchian cast, but what's your favorite uh, Lynch movie, Dave? Oh gosh. Mine's definitely probably Mulholland Drive or Blue Velvet. I I, I want to say I used to teach Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive a couple times. I, I liked so many of them. Uh, right. I, I was also really good. Blah- Way I was gonna say, but I'm a wild at heart 
fan oh, myself. Yeah, like, I like, oh my god, just for just for Willem Dafoe in that. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, I'm gonna watch. Will, I, since yeah, Willem Dafoe should play every character in my adaptation. Of, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that'd be great, including the including the women. Every um, every yeah. every character. Apple bomb too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Slightly younger to both. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I like that. Um, all right. Well, um, I think that's, wow. We got to the end of this. <laughs> yeah. um, David, we're in quarantine. Who cares at this point? <laughs> exactly. Um, well, my wife is going to get home soon and be like, you're still reporting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I guess I should, I should help my girlfriend move boxes. Yeah. Oh, uh, so. On that note, uh, Dave, it was awesome having you. Hey, uh, thanks, Brad. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, Good we're going to have to have you back for Ubik. Um, Anytime. Yeah, it's, uh, hopefully by then we'll be back in the studio and, uh, we won't kill Larry in the process. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, cause we have time before Ubik, so, um, right. <laughs> so next up, we're reading The Zap Gun. Um, which I had, this will be my first time reading Zap Gun as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, do we have a description up or should I? I got it. That? I got it. Okay. You're ready. Go. Are we ready? In this fighting satire. You fucked me up, David. <laughs> In this fighting satire, the Cold War may have ended, but the Eastern and Western governments never told their citizens. Instead, they created an elaborate ruse wherein, oh, my phone shut off. Wherein each side comes up with increasingly outlandish doomsday weapons, weapons that don't work. But when aliens invade, the top designers of both sides have to come together to make a real doomsday device if they don't kill each other first. The zap gun. Nice. Zap gun. Alright, so, on that note. Yeah. Dickheads, uh, you made it all the way to the end of this episode. Uh, more power to you, and keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid.